Thank you for listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Multiple sclerosis is a disease of the central nervous system that can cause a variety of unpredictable symptoms. Its diagnosis is tricky and may involve the expertise of a neuropsychologist such as Dr. Dominic Carone. Dr. Carone, coordinator of the Neuropsychology Assessment Program at Upstate Medical University, is here to talk about the role of neuropsychology in the evaluation of multiple sclerosis. Welcome, Dr. Carone. Thank you. Thanks. Glad to be here. Well, let's start by explaining what a neuropsychologist is and what a neuropsychological evaluation entails. Good question, because many people get confused about that. A neuropsychologist is a type of psychologist who specializes in the assessment of how the brain uh, functions and how that relates to how we think and how we feel and how we behave. And there are many ways that a neuropsychologist goes about doing that. Uh, one way is by sitting with the patient and doing a detailed clinical interview so they could understand the history of the presenting problems. A, a, another way is by uh, looking at a detailed review of the person's medical records. Uh, another way is by making behavioral observations. And then uh, there's the actual testing component of the evaluation, mm. which is where uh, we administer the patient a battery of tests. They're called neuropsychological tests. Uh, these are tests that mostly focus on assessing somebody's thinking skills, so their memory, their ability to learn new information, their ability to find words, their ability to think quickly, their ability to use visual spatial constructional skills and processing skills, their ability to pay attention and concentrate, uh, executive functioning, which is a broad term that refers to higher level thinking skills such as planning, okay. multitasking. Uh, abstract thinking. Uh, there are also some self-report scales that are administered to check into things like personality and uh, emotional functioning such as depression, anxiety, um, and, and, and other types of self-reported symptoms such as fatigue. And there's also usually some type of uh, sensory motor component of the evaluation that as well. That sounds like it takes a lot of time. <laughs> it does. The length of the evaluation really will differ uh, depending on the uh, type of patient it is and the type of referral question that needs to be answered. It could be done in as little as uh, an hour or two, and sometimes it could take up to four to six wow. hours. It really wow. just depends on the person. Well, and um, what types of patients do you take care of? Do you see a wide variety? Or? Well, our program does see a wide variety. We're really what I call a medically-based neuropsychology assessment program. In other words, we really structure our program so that we evaluate people who have known or reasonably suspected brain damage or brain dysfunction. So common types of diagnosis diagnoses that we would see are patients with uh, traumatic brain injuries, uh, patients with uh, epilepsy, uh, some of whom are considering uh, going for surgery, so we might do a pre- and post-surgical evaluation, um, the patients with brain tumors, patients with strokes, uh, patients with developmental disorders such as cerebral palsy, uh, and also patients with um, what we call demyelinating diseases such as multiple sclerosis would be, uh, would be oh, another one. Okay. Well, I actually want to focus on multiple sclerosis, so right. let's talk a little bit about what that is, though. Well, essentially, multiple sclerosis is a, is a demyelinating disease. In other words, there are nerve fibers uh, in the brain and in the spinal cord that are covered by a fatty nerve sheath known as myelin. And in multiple sclerosis, the myelin gets attacked and it gets damaged and it gets broken down. So an analogy that I like to give people would be if you could imagine a, a fiber optic cable system that transmits information. Mm. And imagine the covering of the fiber optic uh, 
system breaking down. That would result in information not being transmitted efficiently. And so that is what results in clinical symptoms in, in, in patients in, in MS is okay. the uh, demyelinating process. Now, if the disease process gets severe enough and the white matter damage uh, becomes extensive, what could ultimately happen is the gray matter of the brain uh, could become damaged as well, and that could result in what we refer to as atrophy or tissue loss in the, in the brain. But it can also affect the spinal cord. Is this a genetic um disease? Is it passed from the family member down? Good, good question. There is a genetic component to it. You wouldn't necessarily refer to it as a genetic disease per se, uh, but it is. there is a genetic component, uh, certainly. Um, there's a certain um, a, a, a gene uh, that uh, APOE4 uh, allele, which uh, some patients with MS or uh, are more likely to have than people who don't have MS. But the cause of MS has been d debated and discussed for decades and decades and decades, and there are multiple possible reasons for it. There are environmental factors, there are viral factors. It's more prevalent in the, in the North than it is in the South. Um, so th there are many possible environmental and genetic factors that could contribute to the uh, development of MS. And I've seen it described in some patients as mild, some moderate, some right. severe. Is there any trajectory that... Well, that's a good question. There are certainly different levels of severity of the disease, uh, typically uh, depending on how long the person has had it, and also what type of form of the disease that they have. There are different types of uh, forms. The most uh, common one is something known as relapsing remitting MS. Uh, that's a form of multiple sclerosis in which the person experiences clinical attacks. That's what we call them. They're, they're acute, uh, is an acute onset of symptoms and signs. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the person experiences the attack and then they bounce back. That's the relapsing, remitting part of it. Um, then there, uh, if that lasts long enough and continues to go on, typically maybe for about 10 to 20 years, they could transition into what's called the secondary progressive form of MS in which the person uh, starts to actually decline and not bounce back like they had before. Oh. Uh, there is also what we call relapsing progressive MS where the person will have relapses but progressively go downwards instead of bouncing back uh, like in the relapsing remitting form. Uh, and the worst form would be the primary primary progressive form in which the person actually continues to have a steady decline uh, right from the beginning. Uh, and that's the cases that you tend to think of when you associate uh, patients with multiple sclerosis who might be in a wheelchair at some point. That, that, that is a more a quickly progressive form of the disease. It tends okay. to be more severe. All right. Well, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air, and we're talking about multiple sclerosis with Dr. Dominic Carone, a neuropsychologist at Upstate Medical University. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how multiple sclerosis is diagnosed. Is, is, it, is it something where uh, you're a certain age, you start looking at, at this in patients, or... What, well, what are the sort of the symptoms that start? Sure. Well, it is more common around the 40s, um, but it can happen in, at different uh, age levels. Um, but there are, are, are different um, things that you would look for in terms of the diagnosis. And there are actual uh, formal um, criteria that uh, can be used, and those criteria that, that, that are typically used are referred to the McDonald's criteria, not McDonald's where you would go get a, a hamburger and french fries, but McDonald after the person who, uh, who named it and, and cr created the criteria. Uh, these criteria typically take into account a combination of uh, different clinical signs and symptoms. They're typically sensory motor symptoms. Uh, one of the more common ones is known as optic neuritis, where the person would have a sudden loss of vision uh, in one eye. 
Um, and that's typically because there's been destruction of the um, um, white matter, the nerve sheath that surrounds the optic nerve. Wow. Okay. Um, now, there's remyelination that can occur, and that can uh, result in the restoration of vision, but these symptoms could last for several days, uh, even a little bit longer. Um, so that, that would be one example of a type of symptom. So you would look at, is, did the person experience one of these clinical attacks? And that would typically drive them to go to their physician, which would sure. typically prompt a referral to a neurologist. And what would happen at that point uh, should be a brain MRI. And what you would look at for the uh, McDonald criteria is, uh, does the person uh, have presence of lesions in the brain? Now, these lesions are evidence of, of disease. They're, it's typically uh, looks uh, bright on the MRI. There are these bright abnormal areas uh, that reflect inflammation. And so what would happen over time to meet the criteria for MS is you would have to have a dissemination of these lesions in space and time. In other words, they don't just show up on one spot on the MRI. They show up in multiple spots, and they um, um, and and this is something that also is present on multiple MRIs over time. So they move around in space and time in association with clinical attacks. So Someone that... could just have one clinical attack, hmm. and it would not necess- It would not, by definition, meet the criteria for MS. That would be called a clinically isolated syndrome or CIS. Some patients with a clinically isolated syndrome go on to develop MS, and some do not. So this is why it requires monitoring. It's not something that would you know, typically be diagnosed just based on one attack. Um, now, there are some clinicians that might go ahead and do that, but that wouldn't be strict following of the diagnostic criteria. Okay. But if it looks like um, MS, and there's some other symptoms too, cognitive and emotional symptoms. Yes, most people along. focus on the on the physical symptoms, which you know again are typically sensory motor symptoms. I mentioned loss of vision. There could be loss of sensation on one side of the body. Difficulty walking is very common. Uh, the fatigue is very common. But there are uh, also emotional symptoms. Uh, depression. Fifty uh, percent of uh, patients with MS have depression, and a uh, same number. Fifty percent of patients with MS have cognitive impairment. Huh, okay. Um, yep. So uh, that's, uh, and that would, of course, be something that neuropsychologists would evaluate during the testing process. Well, uh, how common is it for multiple sclerosis to be misdiagnosed? I know you have a paper that looked at a case, but right. is this, it's right. a pretty tricky diagnosis, right? Uh, it can be. It depends on the, on the case, and certain cases are more are, are clear than others. Um, uh, some cases, uh, it's more controversial because what you essentially have to do to make the diagnosis is you have to be able to rule out that there are other uh, reasonable causes that can cause the uh, clinical symptoms and also the uh, what you're seeing on the MRI in terms of the lesions. Now, there are multiple uh, different diagnoses that can cause sensory motor symptoms, and there are uh, different diagnoses. Uh, for example, lupus cerebritis, which is when lupus infects the brain, uh, can uh, cause sensory motor symptoms, and it can cause lesions that show up on the on the brain MRI. So there are uh, multiple conditions that could present similarly, and that's where you need the expertise of a neurologist to uh, look and a neuroradiologist to to look at the scans and assess the clinical symptoms and 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 perhaps perform other diagnostic tests such as lumbar puncture. There's something called visual evoked potentials and sensory evoked potentials uh, that can be done to uh, rule in or rule out MS or some other type of uh, cause that might be contributing to it. Well, tell me about the paper, because you had a case 
Tell us about it. Right. This was a, a case uh, that I had uh, evaluated here in the neuropsychology assessment program last year and wound up publishing it as a, a case report in the, in the journal Applied Neuropsychology uh, Adult. And essentially what it was was a 61-year-old uh, woman who was um, uh, diagnosed with uh, MS uh, despite the fact that she did not have any classic MS relapses and remissions, as we discussed before, and, okay. and, and she only had um, one lesion that showed up on the MRI, mm -hmm. so they were, and it was on the brain MRI, not the spinal, so they were not uh, disseminated in, in space or time in terms of the lesions. Um, um, she was having problems like significant fatigue, and she was having intermittent right arm tingling and numbness and heaviness. But these were pretty constant symptoms. They were they were generally always there, and that's atypical for MS, where you typically have these uh, fluctuations right. and these relapses and remissions. So those things right there should have been some some clues. But she was diagnosed with MS, and she was. Um, uh, treated for it as well. In addition to that, in this particular patient, she had lesions in areas of the brain that you would not expect to see them in MS, but you would expect to see them in catacil. So these were markers that could have been used that actually were not used. Uh, long story short, um, after writing the report and talking to the patient and her husband about this uh, and getting back in touch with the neurologist, after a few months, the MS diagnosis was actually removed. And that's a process that I refer to that I do sometimes, which is called undiagnosis. undiagnosis sometimes patients okay. need to be undiagnosed. And, and um, you know, misdiagnosis does happen sometimes. Every clinician, uh, it's something that happens to every clinician. Diagnose, diagnostic process is one that sometimes evolves, but when new information comes in that points to the fact that a, a, an original diagnosis is wrong, you have to be willing to change that. And so, what that. what's the lesson for a patient from this? How do you th how do they guard themselves against it's, misdiagnosis? It's a good question because I think the the lesson is really for 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 two groups of individuals. One is yes for patients, but really more. Uh, I wrote the paper for clinicians because there needs to be more awareness among clinicians that these two conditions do not coexist. So if you see that those two things are happening or suspect that they're happening in the same patient, likely not the case. Okay. Um, so, and, and bringing to, you know, writing the paper was uh, one of the reasons for that was just to um, point out the different factors that can help distinguish between the two conditions. But for patients, um, patients should not be scared to uh, question a diagnosis and to ask questions to their physician, particularly asking what diagnostic criteria were used to make this diagnosis. That's very important because okay. in this particular case, the McDonald criteria do not look like they were followed. Okay. Um, well, thank you. Yep, no problem. Thank you. thank you for coming in and speaking about this. Thanks for having me. Um, this has been uh, your host, Amber Smith, speaking with Dr. Dominic Carone, and this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air.